Explore, engage your curiosity and get switched on to learning. You're listening to a lecture from the Enfield Thinks pop-up learning series by Birkbeck, University of London. I thought I'd start off with Carpe Diem. You're familiar with that, aren't you? What is Carpe Diem? Well, I've given the, I've given the game away, haven't I? <laughs> Hopeless. Now, of course, you may have all been to Eton, so you may all know Latin, but I thought I'd, I'd, I'd be helpful and put seeds the day up. It's over 2,000 years old. I'll give you the full quote in a minute. Make the most of the moment, yeah? The actual line is Horace, the Odes, first century BC. Carpe diem, it's his exclamation mark, not mine, uh, sees the day, trusting as little as possible in the next day, which is the less well-known second bit of the quote. So, trusting as little as possible in the next day, so it's an interesting one because seize the day almost always makes people think that it's all about the now and the moment. Actually, what the quote seems to indicate is he's also saying, be prudent and make sure that you're planning for the future sensibly because you don't know what's around the corner. You know, so it's not just enjoy the pleasures and fruits of your labour today, but think about the future too. And this is the, se- this is the bit that's often, and perhaps in our culture, unsurprisingly, uh, missed out of the equation because it's it's always interpreted as seize the day now. Now I found out that this quote from Dead Poets Society was voted the 95th most popular quote in film history. <laughs> I'm not sure if that makes it a good or a bad thing, but it's from Dead Poets Society and it's Robin Williams, the, the teacher. You know, he says, "Seize the day, boys, make your lives extraordinary." And there's all, and then they stand up on the table and it's you know, it's very uh, very inspiring. Um, what do you think the first quote is? It's from uh, Gone with the Wind. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn is the, uh, is the most popular. So it's up against some fairly stiff competition, this. But what I was interested in is how might this message be both an opportunity and a pressure? Because it's something that, you know, it's a very old quote. It's a very old idea. It's something that we relate to in our society. You know, there are T-shirts. You know, I'm just, just, I didn't create that image myself. That's, if you go on Google Images, hundreds of different fashions that have got it on bags, t-shirts. It's become a kind of emblematic um, idea of our age. But why might it construe as an opportunity and a pressure in our, in our society? Is it a pressurising type of message which gives us the idea that we ought to be seizing the moment, every single moment, and that our lives ought to be extraordinary? And in about, hopefully, about half an hour, we'll get to depending on how we run, uh, we'll do some, we'll, we'll just a little bit ideals and advertising and how advertising adds to this idea. So on the one hand, we can relate to Carpe Diem because it says to us, as individuals whose standard of life is by far and away better than any other uh, era, you know, you make the most of it, you can fly to different countries, you can, your, your scope of relationships is much, much wider, you can do lots of different types of work. If you're a woman, you can you know, you have rights now in marriage, whereas before you didn't. So the, the idea is a more opportunity, but at the same time, this idea there's a kind of relentless pressure to be special, to make the most of your life. And whether this is helpful or not, because can all of us be extraordinary? Maybe you could say we could. But certainly um, one of the things we'll look at is why in the West happiness has seemed to have levelled off despite the rise in income. And I'll show you some stuff about that. So what it relates to, I think, what this, what this quote shows to me as well is to what extent we're responsible for our own happiness and to what extent we're shaped in our choice of leisure and free time by the types of societies we live in. 
Now, you know, in academia, this is always known as structure and agency, and, and, and academics are obsessed with it, and it's all about, you know, they admit for free will, but to what extent are we deluded in the extent of our free will? You know, are we more shaped by society than we like to believe? But certainly, the, the key messages of happiness is an individualistic and an and empowering one, which says we choose independently, freely and rationally. This is the sort of idea of, you know, we can choose to live the life that we want, but we're responsible for our own happiness. Now, this message maybe we accord with, but this is a very different message to how most of human history has understood happiness. And actually, if you go to different parts of the world, you would see that there might be different cultural understandings of happiness as well. Arguably, we believe in this individualistic message. If you don't agree with me, by the way, just say. Now, you know, and I think all of us can, can sort of feel that, yes, you know, we do have a sense of control and, uh, over our own destiny. But the other side of and what's known as the structure debate is the murky bit in the middle, which is the, which is, which is the to what extent is our whole notion of, of our individual life influenced, constrained, i.e., is it an obstacle, and capacitated, or i.e., you know, does living in England give us a higher chance of happiness than, say, living in a different country? Uh, the answer, according to the statistics, would be yes, but not as much as living in Denmark <laughs> would help your happiness. Um, and broadly speaking, as I covered last week, generally the statistics bear out the free, so-called free democratic West, but it's not always the case. So Costa Rica has very high happiness levels, for example. Yeah, Central America seems to be a good place to go. Um, so, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and I think many people, in fact, my parents have just, I've just got loaded with loads of photos from Mexico. Yes, mum and dad, you're enjoying your retirement. Um, and we remember from last week that over 65s, highest happiness, lesson of leisure and free time, maybe. If you're not working, it's by choice. And it means you can do the stuff that you've always wanted to do, if you can afford it, of course. So the other thing about culture is, you know, to what extent is our view of happiness conditioned by what our culture views as happiness? And what does our culture value? And so one of the things we'll look at is the way in which, on the other hand, on one hand, we're, we're persuaded, we're, we're convinced that we are individuals able to live the lives the way we want to. At the same time, Society values certain things. It values money, it values status, it values work, it values success, it values a house, a car. If you don't have those things, do you feel that you're living a worthwhile life? Is it harder to feel that you are? Um, and one of the really interesting things about the research happiness of well-being is the sense that people feel guilty if they don't meet those norms. So it depends how you construe it. But certainly all the research about happiness, you know, when people are asked about what does happiness mean to you? Most people say it's about an internal, individualistic thing, about being in some, something about harmony. It's quite interesting. When you ask people, they, they, they say relationships, but people will often say it's kind of about having a sense of harmony, a sense of well-being. And you can take that lots of, you know, in lots of different ways, but it is a very individualistic way of thinking about it. And people say, you know, we are responsible for our happiness, and by dint of our own efforts. The question is, to what extent that is a good thing or produces pressure? Generally speaking, most people seem to indicate quite high happiness and well-being levels, but what about all the other people who don't? And one of the pieces of research I've just done recently is, is with an advice centre in um, the Woolworth Road in Blackfriars. 
about people coming in for advice who's, when their legal aid's been cut, when they've had sickness and they're on benefits, and the sense that they feel rejected by society is really very strong. And depending on your political persuasion, you might have different views about that. But it's very interesting that, these, that, that people feel that they're the, they're the marginalised and forgotten, that they haven't managed to make it by what society means, and they feel that that's unfair, rightly or wrongly. I think it's interesting. I think if you ask people about their circumstances, they might well blame. And there's a certain amount of logic in, in blaming if, if, if things aren't going well. However, I would still say that people generally still say it's my responsibility to be happy, or they'll move the, move the goalpost. It's not about being a victim. It's about not having the support if you're not wealthy, potentially. I mean, you know, that's, that's the case of it. So these things are all up for grabs about what do we think about individuals who are struggling? You know, do we think it's their own fault, or what, to what extent do we think it's a societal norm? We'll look at that more in another session when we, when we look at politics. But certainly, part of the reason I introduced these sort of almost slightly critical, troubling messages about happiness is because the reason that, that there is all these happiness studies is because economists about 40 years ago identified this problem. And this is the happiness paradox, which is the quote there is from Richard Layard, who's one of the key thinkers in the UK about happiness. But he's an economist, which is an odd profession to think about happiness. But nonetheless, this is where it came from. And what they noticed was this, that they looked at wealth and they looked at happiness and they noticed something, and this is, this is about the UK. They noticed, and you see on the dotted line, wealth going up and up and up and up. And they also noticed that happiness wasn't changing at all. And so they were troubled by this. And this is known as the East Dillon Paradox, and this is back in the 1970s. And it seems to bear out in most countries. And in America, the bottom line of people's happiness is actually going, is worse than it used to be. So this is the, this is the sort of catalyst for all the happiness studies, not let's become happier, but why aren't we happier? And that's what the crucial um, thing is. And, and, and what Layard says in the UK is, although living standards have doubled since the 1950s, the evidence is that for most types of people in the West, happiness has not increased, despite massive increases in income at every point of the income distribution. So what he's saying is that over the last you know, 50, 100 years, it's not just that the rich have got rich, but everyone has. Because that question was uh, my next one, that, that our expectations rise in line of our income. That is one of the major interpretations of that paradox, that happiness stays the same, but wealth goes up. So expectation as in, you know, as soon as we, um, and this is what's known as adaptation in, in, in psychology of happiness, as soon as we get something, we're not satisfied with it. We need the next thing. And there's this whole process, and we'll look at it in different ways. So that's one key idea that we, we're used to it, i.e. we don't compare our happiness with people 50 years ago. We compare it with two years ago, or our mates. Uh, and the comparison thing is very interesting, and this is something I looked at last week, about people's comparisons are to do with, with their peer group, not society as a whole. Um, so if you're bankers, and, you, and you, you know, if you said to a banker, do you need your bonus? Of course, it's, it's actually in happiness psychology terms. It doesn't, it's not logical as a question, because the marker for success will be against the, the people who work in hedge funds. So if they get a bonus, so should I. So that's what's quite interesting. So, you know, that, that's what psychology has given us uh, with happiness studies, the idea about this expectation. And we, have, we, we adapt very quickly to rising income, and we compare it against 
our peers. However, I would say, you know, history was my first degree. Philosophers have been saying this for hundreds of years. They knew before any psychology, you know, you can test this um, psychology stuff. They knew that was they knew that was the case. You know, there's always been this theme. And the problem with happiness, as it's called a new science, is that it's questionable how new it really is. But it's certainly given a scientific basis to what is actually a very old and long-running ideas about happiness. So aside from the expectation rising in line of our income, so one of the interesting ideas, as I've touched on before, about in individualism is its opportunities and its isolation. And, that, and that, that, that conflict runs through the ideas, really, that we've become less community-minded, we have less people to rely on, and our social relations have somehow suffered. Now, I teach community development, and there is a very, very large element of nostalgia driving that idea, and to what extent that nostalgia is a, a real one or not. Because, you know, and politicians are very clever at mobilising this idea of the past and what was fantastic about it. And usually, someone interrupts me now and says, yeah, but I remember my nan saying, we could leave our front doors open. And so people do actually say, yes, it was. So it's an interesting... It's an interesting one, but that's a key idea about... I won't show this, I have got this graph, but I'll show it another time. It, it, it's the rise in mental health illness. It's quite staggering. Now, a, a critical argument to that would be, yes, well, except that people didn't measure mental... We didn't categorise lots of things as mental ill health before, you know. Um, Churchill was a manic depressive, but he called it his black dog. You know, he wasn't diagnosed as a depressive, he just, you know... so. In a way, are we not just, is it not just the fact we diagnose a lot more? But nonetheless, that's one of the key concerns, mental health. So what the key idea then is about the fact that clearly our lives have improved in lots and lots of ways. And it would be very difficult to say that they hadn't. We live longer. Even if you're unhappy, you're going to live longer being unhappy. <laughs> um, you're going to live longer, and you're going to live longer in better health. You, you have more choice of jobs, potentially. It's the reference to it. But nonetheless, it's quite striking that the assumption, and this is partly why economists were worried about it, they thought that would be the case. They thought, well, if we improve living standards, which is what the wealth graph really indicates, the fact that most people can now expect to consume items, regardless of your, you know, your social class, that that really ought to have produced more happiness. You know, people were living in apartments with toilets rather than um, you know, toilets outdoors all the things that we kind of take for granted. So they were a bit surprised. I mean, we may not be surprised, but they were a bit surprised by that. But of course, it's a good point that income doesn't seem to affect happiness after a certain point that much. And it's in the UK, it's seen as about 50,000. I'll go into that a lot more about when we do the, um, when I look at economics in particular. So this is sort of, the idea is that what we, we've gained in lots of things, but we've lost in others. And one of the issues with our leisure time is the fact that we, we really have more time but we feel that we don't. And that's a really interesting split. We clearly have more time than we used to. You know, we have a, you know, even if people work very long hours, they have a weekend quite often. Well, th this is unprecedented in history. You know, it's wonderful. Apparently, though, if you were, a, if you were a, a labourer in the 15th century, you worked less hours. Uh, but you might die earlier <laughs> of, of a horrible disease and not have a, alleviated pain. So, um, nonetheless, we also have more time uh, and feel that we do, and yet we feel time poor. And this is something that I'm going to touch on, particularly in the second part of this session, this odd relationship uh, with time. Now, when you ask people, and I'm going to look at this in more detail um, in the politics session, but, we, but I'll say some of the key messages here. 
people are asked, you know, what aspects of their lives they're satisfied with uh, in the UK. Lots of hundreds of thousands, you know, almost 100, about 150,000 people are asked a succession of questions. Most people say they're quite satisfied with their lives overall. Most people are quite satisfied with their relationships. Most people are quite are pretty satisfied with their health. We're talking about 80, 90% of people are asked. The lowest satisfaction ratings, and income has actually become the lowest, which is interesting because that's changed since 2010, and that shows about maybe the, the, the social context. The other two areas are happiness with our free time and work-life balance. So even though over half of people are satisfied with their work-life balance, and over half, almost two-thirds, with their leisure time, that's much lower than other satisfaction ratings overall. So the idea about compression and difficulty of leisure and free time is one which has been identified. But this is all very broad research. So actually not expecting too much, being content. And we'll see that old Horace, whose uh, carpe diem quite I showed you, actually he, will, he stresses that the simple pleasures, you know, not wanting too much. And actually, the really interesting one, which, which he takes from um, a Greek philosopher called Epicurus, is, is actually what you want to do is reduce the ratio between desires and satisfied desires. And what he means by that is, if we want less and we satisfy more, we'll be less dissatisfied. Right? Whereas if we want lots and lots of things and only satisfy a few, we'll constantly feel that we're not doing well enough. But, you know, essentially, he was writing in an era where people's expectations were much lower, uh, unless you were a senator or a lord. So we've got organised, being selfish. I think the division between self-interest and altruism needs to be reconsidered. You could argue that everything falls under the purview of self-interest. Even when, for, you know, for example, last night, I was getting the train home, and I noticed there were cars scattered on the seat opposite. And they were someone's driving licence, AA, and obviously someone had nicked their wallet, rifled through their bank cards, taken them, left the others. So, and I thought, what shall I do? I thought, well, I'll take them and I'll, co I'll contact this person because you can find anyone and I'll at least get those back to her. And, and she sent, so I got in touch with her and she sent me a very nice message. And I felt good about it, even though it was doing something for someone else. So is there really a division between the two? Sometimes necessarily, you know, sometimes what makes us self-interested can appear either to be about saying to people no and being quite firm with them, or it can be saying to people, I will sacrifice my time. But arguably everything comes under the purview of self-interest. The question is to what extent how enlightened our self-interest has become. I mean, certainly one of the ideas of happiness in the West is that we, we, we've kind of been forced to become self-interested because it's a competitive environment, because jobs and relationships and everything is kind of competitive in a way that perhaps it didn't used to be. But perhaps that's, a, perhaps that's fine. What else? What about low work-life balance? Um, I, I mentioned last week that commuting is seen as one of the permanent dissatisfaction of Londoners. I definitely agree with that, having had my trains cancelled twice in a row from Seven Sisters. Because we can't control. We feel out of control commuting, and we don't, people don't like it. So flexibility is important in work because we feel that we regain some element of control over our working lives. I, I will talk about work in more detail, funnily enough, in the work and happiness uh, session. But one of the ideas of work is that, you know, we work the longest hours in Western Europe, uh, but we're no more productive. So we work lots more, but we don't get any more done. So our working lives itself are definitely open to scrutiny. We work much longer than the French and the Germans, but we have lots more holidays than the Americans.
pressure on our free time to maximise it makes us more disillusioned when we can't control things, when we are late. The people are, we're, we're, we're angry because we're being um, thwarted in our efforts. And is this a realistic approach to life sometimes? It's one of the interesting ideas about um, control and commuting. But I agree, generally speaking, you know, in turn, I covered it last week when we looked briefly at well-being. There were two aspects which seemed really important to well-being and therefore by indirectly happiness. One was your material circumstances and the second was psychological, of which autonomy and feeling in control of your life is absolutely crucial. So I think I'd absolutely support that. The core tenets of this positive psychology are this, which is to do more in your leisure time, for example. You know, identify what you enjoy rather than what you do. Because people say they like doing things and then say, why don't I do more of them? So there's this disconnect between what people like doing and what they actually do. The other thing is about do more of what you're good at, so play to your strengths, and do more of what you value. And this is kind of the core theme that runs through. But first you have to kind of isolate those things. And the strengths, and we'll get on to another time. Now the other one that positive psychology says is, all right, if we're so, if expectation and dissatisfaction is actually excessive, and actually we ought to be more content, how do we actually retrain our brains to be more content? And so what they, what, what they emphasise is a very old idea, which is called count your blessings, which is that simply, and this is the suggestion, that you take a few minutes at the end of each day to write down three things that went well. Now, I think it works quite well in terms of sleep, actually, because it's actually a way of stopping your anxiety, potentially. Breaking out of that sort of, oh, I've got to do this tomorrow, I've got to do that tomorrow. So that's one of the key suggestions, is to focus on what's good. But, again, it's not about three things that were amazing, like, you know, I made a million. I... <laughs> you know, it's about just three ordinary types of things. Now, what that does, I mean, one of the other things about happiness research is the idea that writing things down works because it helps people to reflect on their, their lives. And, um, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's one of the key things that's emphasised. Another idea, which is similar to the first one, which is a call to a book called Happier by Ben Shahir, is about meaning, pleasure, strengths. So in this, he looks at this at work, but actually it can be related to, to, to pretty much anything. You know, again, it's like a Venn diagram of the three. Are there activities which both give you joy, uh, play to your strengths, and hold meaning for you, is the key. And he's talking about specifically about employment, but I don't see why it can't be applied. I mean, one of the things that I have done a lot at Birkbeck is people are doing nursing, doing an access degree to nursing. Now, I shouldn't really be, you know, I've, I don't know anything about nursing, but they were doing a career and professional development module, and I was interested in what was important to them. And I thought that nursing was interesting because it showed how those three interact for them. They liked doing it. You know, they enjoyed being with people. If they, were, if they didn't like people or caring for them, don't see how they'd enjoy their jobs. It was, it was, they enjoyed it. They enjoyed the, the, the pressure in ways that other people wouldn't do. They were good at it. You know, they were good at being clear and compassionate. They were good at being clear and compassionate to lots of different types of people. But they also believed that it was important to them. And what most of the nurses said, actually, is that the reason I became a nurse or a midwife, particularly, was I saw a midwife be brilliant with me or my mum or my sister. So that's one of the key ideas that comes out of this type of stuff. But it all sounds quite rational. And to what extent, you know, actually, it's difficult to just turn these things around. 
Now, one of the conflicts that's been identified, and the reason that we, you know, that it's not so easily a question of just doing what we enjoy, is that we have both internal and external drivers and motivations. And there are those things that we value as, as individuals, what our goals are, what we enjoy doing, our relationships, our local life, the sense that we're developing as a person. You know, these things are important to us. You're listening to a lecture from the Enfield Thinks pop-up learning series by Bert Beck, University of London. And then there are the stuff that we have to value because society values too. And those could be described as money and status and image and what society seems to value, like celebrity. And one of the key conversations in youth work at the moment is how do we get young people to have more realistic expectations of what's achievable? Because the problem is that the messages they're receiving is about these fantastically fabulous, wealthy lives that haven't really been earned by doing anything particularly talented. So how do we close this gap? So one of the ideas about why it's not so simple as, right, OK, we have a nice little wheel, and we focus on what's important, is because we're in conflict in terms of what values are. And this is something I think that's quite interesting because it shows a realistic view, I think, about what goes on in people's lives. I mean, as you'd expect, there have been lots and lots and lots of recent studies. Does Facebook and social media make you unhappy? I don't like it, hence why I've got this phone. (laughs) I like not having access to the internet. I like not being contactable. The point is about what do we do as opposed to what we would like to do. And, And they're not necessarily the same thing. So I don't know what it feels like to be on a train, but I'd notice that everyone gets out their things. And the, the jury is out on happiness and technology. You know, it's, it's, it, it's one of those new things and people, lots of people, oh God, it's changed and it just makes us so distracted and we're, we're becoming, you know, we, we, we've got three second brains. On the other hand, you know, if you're 16, you're just, it's just what you're used to. One of, the, one of the very interesting key debates about, you know, what type of happiness to pursue is about, you know, how, how important is it to have experienced more happiness than unhappiness? And one of the, what's done in philosophy is the uh, intuition pumps, is say, well, imagine you look back at your life. What would you count as success? Would you count the ratio of happy to unhappy moments? Or would you actually rate it in a different, would you think of it in a different way? Would you think of it about achievements or ups and downs or experiences. So it's interesting as to whether people would, and most people would say, probably about, you know, the journey would be more important than whether it was a really happy journey or not. That's a very key idea of historic happiness, that there's an element of luck and fortune. It's really interesting, actually. You don't get anyone writing that anymore. But I think it's quite important, and that's one of the things I'm going to write about. People do say, well, look, it's inevitable. Things go up and things go down. And actually, you know, but it's kind of been eradicated from the discussion. I think that's quite, and it's quite an interesting point. But Layard is saying, look, the things that we fully adapt to are the things that we buy. They're material possessions. We get used to them very quickly. We get a TV, it's exciting, then it just becomes an old TV. Advertising helps in this because it's, you know, known as planned obsolescence. You pretty much guarantee a shelf life of a product of about, say, a year or two years, like the iPhones. You know, you, you deliberately plan to build them out of existence. He's saying we get used to money, we get used, I took the lottery winners last week. Big hit in happiness, then they just then they just return to their kind of normal set point. What do we not adapt to though? He says we don't adapt to people. People do get bored of their relationships, but in but relationships can be things that keep on giving. He says things that we really enjoy, like you know, reading or, or music. 
We don't really adapt to them. They're constantly new things that we can that we can find. It was a great program that Alan de Botton did, but it was it was investigating people who just who always chose to go on holiday in the UK in caravans. And he said the thing is that everyone thinks that's bad because it's not new, it's not exciting, it's not glamorous. But he said well, what they're probably doing is finding something every year that's, that, that, that they can still enjoy. And that was a very interesting program, actually, and he then wrote a book about it, you know. But it was about, all, but, you know, and he's quite a sort of, you know, clever guy, but it was about ordinary people and the way in which they find new things to enjoy about similar activities. How can we get more out of the things that we already have, essentially, is the, is the key. But the idea that we adapt to extrinsic type of things like status as well, we get used to these things. And they're very contingent and fleeting. You know, in one moment we might be held in high esteem and then we might lose our jobs. And suddenly, and this is what I've done research with people, suddenly we're not held in any esteem at all. And it's really shocking for people. So, you know, things can change very quickly. And again, one of the, the ideas that, um, that Will Hutton, who's an economist, says about the issues is, yes, of course, it's important to concentrate on our intrinsic drivers, what matters to us personally. But let's not pretend that what society values isn't important to people. People are needy and vulnerable and they do like to be recognised, respected and uh, appreciated by society that they live in. And what he says is that individual human beings instinctively compare themselves and they're sensitive to what the whole of society values. And he says that, you know, perhaps the reason that we have such high levels of anxiety in, in the UK is that it's partly follows when we can't, if people feel they cannot compete with these alluring images of advertising of young people with celebrity. We cannot compete with that and we feel a failure. Who, who watches Mad Men? No. You, you know what you kind of, yeah. There's a very, you know, and this is Coke, Coca-Cola's famous open happiness. You know, it's promising, you know, open a Coke, have, uh, drink your happiness. And Don Draper, who's the main character, is an ad man in Mad Men. He says, uh, Advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? It's freedom from fear. The, what advertisers are selling you is this world in which your life will be satisfied and you will be free from fear and concerns and worries. However, unfortunately, what he also says is, what is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. <laughs> and so what he's saying is that actually advertising promises you happiness, but it's deliberately designed with a built-in flaw, which is to make that happiness as short as possible so that you need to buy something else to have it again. It's a message which is based on an illusion. And Darren McMahon, whose book um, I've just read, he says the problem, that one of the issues in the West is that if we're saturated by the smiling images of real people, of course they're actors, enjoying themselves eternally, as is their right. This artificial happiness only reinforces the sadness, guilt and sense of inadequacy felt by those who cannot find it in themselves to share in the mirth. Now, I think that's probably slightly over the top in some degree, but I think it captures something quite important, that advertising contains its own pressure and social expectation. And he says, you know, there's lots of ways you can be unhappy, but in the modern age, we've got a new version, which is the unhappiness of not being happy, i.e. that we're expected to be and we're not, in ways that we never were before. On the other hand, which age will we prefer to live in? Well, you can see it in lots of different ways. I threaten time, and it's time to um, investigate the concept. Right, so there's this idea that there's, there's, there's different types of time cultures, and there's a time-famine culture, you don't have enough time. There's a time-surplus culture, got too much time. And then there's a time affluent culture, which I guess is the optimum, uh, which is that we have enough time. 
What kind of time culture do we live in? We ought to feel time affluent. We really ought to. Yeah, relative to our European neighbours who work much longer hours, but most of us still have two days a weekend. It was a dream 100 years ago. It's a dream. If you're lucky, you know, and we get, what, 20 days? Absolute dreams we've got. The question is, is, you know, it's a difference in perception and reality. So if you were just measuring objectively, you'd say, well, we ought to feel time affluent, but we don't. We definitely feel time poor. And that's indicated by people's dissatisfaction with their work-life balance, dissatisfaction with their leisure time. We'll look at some of the reasons behind this uh, in a sec. And this is being confirmed by, this is a Gallup poll, and it's quoted in a, in a source I've got in a sec, which is that actually the more money we have, the more time poor we feel. Well, that, that really ought to not be the case. That's interesting. What might be going on there? Working long hours? Right, okay, so obviously there is a correlation, and in America that would definitely, between money and, 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 and income. Feeling guilty not to work, if you, if, for example, if you always feel like you're on call with work, which is what a lot of people I know say they are, they never feel like they can leave work. You know, we want more. So lots of people complain they don't have enough time to spend their money, and of course in certain professions that would be... But what about the ways in which we spend our time? Because this is more what the research would focus on. Partly to do with the use of technology that we covered before. That's part of one of the reasons. That we're excessively monitoring our lives in ways we never used to before. The pressure on us to consume is a greater than ever before. We can consume 24 hours a day now. Our personal admin, as I've known people call it, our personal work has increased and pushed out the fun stuff. That we're always on the internet checking bank accounts and booking holidays and checking if we've got the right one. And then being sort of persuaded that we really ought to choose another website to go on. And is that the right one? And, you know, I remember booking planes by phone. Do you remember people do, you remember doing this? Yeah. I, it, I remember it being quite annoying, but it wasn't that hard. Whereas now booking planes and booking hotels, it takes weeks for people. People, you know, especially if I'm doing it with my friends. They're saying, well, no, I think we ought to do that. And, um, so it's quite an interesting way in which, which the is making us feel time poor even if we're not. But there is an argument that, you know, like our level of satisfaction, the problem with time is that because we spend so, you know, we want to make the most of it, we don't actually think too much about how we're spending it. So I think it's interesting about the idea about why using the internet is negative well-being is it because it's this sort of mindless browsing that becomes unaccountable because that's the way that the technology works. It's you do one thing and then you do the next thing. Um, but some people say, actually, I really enjoy the time when I'm just doing stuff on my smartphone. So Arianna Huffington, who runs the Huffington Post, she wrote this blog, which I thought was quite interesting, which was, you know, about time pressure. So, you know, you can have a read. But she's saying, you know, are you, are you constant? Are you busy right now? Are you already behind on what you wanted to accomplish today or this week or this year? Are you hoping this will be a short post so you can get back to the million things on your to-do list or five box sets that you need to watch that are breathing down your neck? Our culture is obsessed with time. This is our real deficit crisis. And so what she's suggesting is that the pressure to maximise our time is actually making time more stressful. Let's move on, let's move on to Cedar Strum and Spicer. Uh, they've just, uh, less well known, um, but they've just written quite an interesting book called The Wellness Syndrome. And they're making similar points. They're saying there's more, what they've done actually is they've followed people who have these increasing monitoring of, you know, like the, the, the watches and the, you know, how many, how many calories am I walking off a day? And they're saying, actually, this, this doesn't help. They're questioning whether it's helpful or not. They're suggesting it puts more pressure on people. Partly because, again, it goes back to what's expected of us as individuals in our society. That we're expected to make the most of our time. And if we look at Facebook, everyone else is having more fun than us. 
Now, sometimes we know they're not, actually. But, um, you know, nonetheless, it's, you know, this, are we making the most of our time? And what they suggest, and again, this is, you know, in a way designed to provoke, is that actually we feel more rushed the more we try and manage our time because strategies to manage time take time, essentially. Now, we had different messages from people at the front about good organisation of time. Um, so but what they're suggesting particularly is that we're given lots and lots of ways to manage our time. At work, we're given time management courses. And, and it, that, what they're suggesting is just all this does is add to the already long list of things that we feel we have to do. And he says, they say it's, it's, trying to, it's working against us. I don't agree with, I don't agree completely, but I kind of understand what they're going. And they're saying it's partly because in our modern world, there is this relentless idea that we should be happier, we should be healthier. So that feeling good has become being good. The idea that if we go down the gym and we're healthy and we eat properly, that actually that's a good life. It's become very bodily um, functioned. And, you know, lots of people enjoy going down to the gym. But what's interesting is actually thinking about it in terms of ways that we can, different types of time that we have. So one is we spend lots of time at work. Yeah, and um, when we look at work, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be talking about, you know, the reason that work satisfaction of work is so important is because there's so much time there. Then there's personal work, personal admin. What kind of stuff is that? Banking. Yeah. Now, banking, you know, that's part, you know, so it's personal anyway, personal. The third is consumption. Consuming goods. Yeah. Eating. Can't be, yeah. But in order to eat, yeah, it's not eating actually, it's only buying food. It's, it's whenever we purchase anything, yeah? Any types of purchase. Then there's the time we spend watching a football, going to cinema, we don't go to cinema very much anymore because we kind of don't need to, watching a film at home, sports, going to the theatre, different things that people do. Then there's the time that we spend with our friends and our family. Then there's idleness which is the time that we don't do anything at all. So we're not even on the computer, just staring into space. <laughs> and there's a big movement called the Go Slow movement, which is saying that we need much more idleness in our lives. We've lost idleness. Why? Because idleness is creative. Idleness is when we have the best ideas. Idleness is when we actually relax and think about what we're doing. And at that point, time slows down and we think we suddenly feel less pressured do you like, you like that idea? Yeah. Right, yeah. The Idler is a magazine. You can, you can go and buy that, I think, from, um, if they can be bothered to get it out in time, of course. <laughs> and, and I quite like this idea, and I use this very, it's a very obvious analogy, but the Archimedes thing about, you know, Eureka, he was in the bath. So, you know, he's taking more time just to sort of do nothing. And, of course, that's what people do on holiday, which is why they value it so much, because they don't feel they have to do anything anymore. So it's the unaccounted time, as it were, but literally doing nothing. I got into trouble, actually, with some friends just on that point um, because they uh, didn't realise how much internet usage was going to cost in Spain and they got a whopping internet bill after their holiday. And I have to say that I sort of said to them, well, do you really need to be spending that much time on the internet on your holiday? And they were like, you know, sod off and you're horrible, and et cetera, et cetera. But it is interesting about actually, do we keep, do we move all these personal work things into our leisure time now so that we don't just relax on holiday anymore. I quite like it when I can't use the internet, it's partly why 
So what Linda, this is, you know, this is before the sort of, you know, this is the, the start of the, the, of the consumption society. He's saying, well, look, there are different ways in which we can spend our time. But what's happening is that they're shifting. So consumption, and he certainly wouldn't have known this, we can always consume now. Whereas before, we could only consume when retail was available to us. Now we can consume all the time. Does that mean we consume more? Probably. But it's the idea that we can is interesting. The second is that, yeah, so there's a massive increase in consumption and personal admin. And there's much more attention is being paid to sort of curating these sorts of, you know, personal life, partly because of the choice that there is now. I remember, you know, again, I remember booking a holiday by going to Thomas Cook. Actually, it wasn't a very good holiday. I wish I had had the internet then. But there is another counter-argument which says, if you take people who spend lots of time researching holidays or people who just decide that they'll just go there, Generally, the people who say they just go there overall have a better experience. Yeah, they might not stay in the nicest place. They might get it wrong a few times. But overall, they spent less time stressing about have we got the right one. My, yeah, and as I said last week, my, my pet hate is the Trivago Hotel advert, where the woman wants to stay in the best hotel. She's got no interest in seeing the city. I think it's Berlin this week. No interest. She doesn't care about Berlin. She just wants to stay in the best hotel. And it's a very pressurised message. Now, what he's also suggesting is that what happens is idleness decreases, as does playfulness, and activities which take time and don't involve consumption, we do less of. And those are sleep, sex, walking, particularly. So we do less of them because we, <laughs> they take time and they don't involve buying anything. Anyway, um, so the idea is that actually the things that, we, you know, the, the slow things... You know, it's well known in relationships that people complain about, you know, we don't sleep enough, we don't have enough sex in our relationships. Um, so people really like walking, and they like walking partly because it gets you out into the countryside, but because it's sort of, you know, it's, it's time where you just spend with nature and you're sort of out of the loop, as it were. Again, this is, you know, there's, there's an element always that what young people do constitutes a moral panic. You know, there, there's lots of people who say that actually computer games are as creative and as educational as, as, what, people, as what young people used to do. So it's a myth that, 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 that it's all kind of negative. And, and of course, it is very social to be on social media. Personally, for me, what I consider to be difficult is the idea that um, if school's difficult, you're still at school after school. That, for me, that would really frighten me, um, that you're still in touch with all these people because you're, you're accessing it. But what he's basically, what Linda suggests is that everything's shifted to consumption and that that's what we, so we've lost something. We've lost idleness, we've lost playfulness because of the pressure to um, consume. And what he says is that the negative consequences of these, we feel we have less time, we eat worse food because we don't spend as much time eating. And one of the, you know, and, and French and Italians, you know, one of the reasons that Mediterranean countries are seen as having high well-being so what happened after the crash is that Greece's well-being went plummeting. Spain stayed kind of the same, Portugal. And, and, and they, there's some research about this. It's because of the way in which they live and they take time and they have a siesta and they eat together and they take time over eating. And one of the protests in the Italian town, not to have a McDonald's in the town, was that they said, we don't want this fast food. So they, they instigated this go slow movement, which you can find uh, on the internet as you're browsing. Um, <laughs> which was all about taking, you know, let's take more time to do, to, to do stuff. Take more time to, as Horace says, you know, to seize the day, to, to, to savour stuff. Um, he says we do, we do less exercise now as well, because, again, it, it, it's, it's time-consuming. 
And the suggestion are that it's producing some sort of aimlessness, which is sort of aimless time, shifting, flitting from one activity um, to the next. Um, now, partly, and this is why you know, I brought up the message when we began, that you know, the economic model in which we live doesn't want us to be idle, really. Because how are we going to create growth if we're not spending? You know, the pre you know, idleness is not seen as a good thing. I mean, you know, one of the things I think is, another person wrote a book about, when you're sick, sickness is healthy for you. It's a way of, the, it's, your body is telling you something. But actually, it's unacceptable in our current working life. And I remember the Beecham's ad which said, stop snivelling and get back to work. Yeah. Now, there's nothing more annoying than somebody comes into work and spreads their yeah. illness as well. But it was an interesting point about the fact that there's something positive about illness, actually. It's our body, you know, it's, yeah. it's our body regenerating and, and telling us to wind down. So what they sort of come up is this harried, research uh, so called the harried leisure class, which is that we're, we're being harried to do things. It's harder to um, do the things that we necessarily would like to do. Well, we're not doing badly compared to the rest of Europe, actually. We, just, we do work longer hours. Who's the happiest country in Europe? Oh, yeah, Scandinavia. That's a separate political point. We'll come to that in the, in the politics <laughs> session. Um, but Mediterranean countries do quite well, despite because of the ways in which they're seen. They have a quite positive... It's partly their communal life, time they take, the way they split their working day. It's not natural to work eight hours a day. It didn't used to happen. We used to have different types of sleep. So it's a, it's a way in which we've sort of um, conditioned ourselves. Um, but this has all been predicted a long time ago by different um, economists and philosophers. That as, we became, that as we become richer, our leisure time will get more stressful. So all the opportunities we get from a, from a better life will in itself produce more stress because we'll be more competitive and we'll be, um, we'll be consuming more and more goods. Let's go back to finish to our Horace Carpe Diem quote. Now, Epicurus, which I had a chat with someone in the break, he is, is what Horace based his Carpe Diem quote on. Now, he's often wrongly seen as the father of hedonism and hedonistic activity. Hedonism being purely about sensual pleasure and feeling good and eating and indulging. And, you, you know, not surprisingly, because of what he says. And one of the things he said is, pleasure is the beginning and the goal of a happy life. So he's saying it's natural to want pleasure. It's natural to pursue pleasure. None, who's, who likes pain? Well, maybe some people like pain. And pain is necessary to some degree, but who really wants, who really wants pain and not pleasure? He says it's natural to want pleasure. But his point was, is that it's how we treat and our attitudes towards pleasure which will distinguish the content from the discontented. So he's saying that, you know, we could be happier by pursuing pleasure, but actually, paradoxically, by learning how to manage it well. So learning how to have experienced pleasure in a productive way rather than a indulgent, constantly consuming, um, adapting, having to get the next model type of way. And he said about using one's discretion. Now, one of the examples he gave was about self-discipline. If you know that a pleasure in the short term is going to conflict with a long-term aim, do you do it or don't you do it? You know, he was calling for some sort of sense-making about what we choose to have pleasure. If I've got a job interview the next day, it might be fun to go out drinking, but I probably not. I probably wouldn't to. Delayed, delayed gratification. Yeah, they showed that the kids. They did this experiment with kids who were told not to eat marshmallows. They, 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 they thought that the kids who delayed their gratification at three, four years old would do better in life, and that's what turned out in the experiment. It's interesting. So delayed gratification, which again is hard 
when it's so easy to consume. He says, you know, we should, what we should do is think we should know ourselves and what's good for us, and we should distinguish between prudent desires, what helps us, and destructive desires, which are unhelpful. And the analogy he uses, which I really like, is, is temperance would make the wine taste sweeter. And what he means is we drink wine all the time. We don't appreciate wine anymore. So, so not drinking wine altogether will actually make us appreciate it more than we do. So it's about how to sort of take, to experience pleasure in moderation. And the emphasis is, and this is again, you know, and this is a very old, um, but it's, it, it's really kind of what we've been covering, advocating simple, social, slow pleasures. That was one of the Enfield Thinks pop-up learning lectures a series to get you switched on to learning by Birkbeck University of London. Thanks to our partners, Enfield Council, Barnet Southgate College, Capel Manor College, the College of Haringey, Enfield and North East London and supported by the Mayor of London. Visit enfieldthinks.co.uk to discover more.